Death is but crossing the world, as friends do the seas. They live in one another still, for they must needs be present. That love and live in that which is omnipresent. In this divine glass, they see face to face, and their converse is free as well as pure. This is the comfort of friends, that though they may be said to die. Yet their friendship and society are, in the best sense, ever present, because immortal. This is episode 151 of Alohomora for August 15th. 2015. Hey everyone, welcome to our very first episode to discuss the very last book in the Harry Potter series, <laughs> Deathly Hallows. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Kat Miller. I'm Eric Skull. Gosh, there's a lot of ones and fives in that, isn't there? There are. We're episode wow. 151, August 15, 2015. Anyway, I'm getting off topic. Our guest this week is Margie. <laughs> Hello, all. So happy to be on Alohomora. Oh, gosh. Margie, please tell us about yourself. What Hogwarts house are you? I am definitely a Hufflepuff uh, through and through. Mm. And um, I'm also a part-time naturalist, uh, used to be full-time teaching nature education programs. And I just started last year at Halloween an online uh, Etsy business called Owl Post Greetings, where I sell handmade greeting cards themed around Harry Potter sci-fi fantasy and nature wow awesome it's really cool i'm gonna check out your etsy shop as soon as we get done here (laughs) i could always use more greeting cards i did just put up two new minerva mcgonagall cards for a certain person on the show awesome i'm gonna definitely have to check those out appreciate that how'd you get into harry potter margie um well i've always been an avid reader but i've kind of been the person who stayed away from all the really popular stuff Yep. And um, was some friends were planning for us to go and see uh, the first Harry Potter film. So I decided to read the book before the movie. And then before we even made it to the movie, I read the first three because I just couldn't stop after the first one. <laughs> now, I have a question because I happen to know through our conversations prior to this recording that you are in the greater Chicago area. Yes, I am. I have to ask, where were you for the fifth Harry Potter book being released? Um, I unfortunately was on a work-related camping trip that I couldn't get out of. And everybody on the camping trips were Harry Potter fans. So at midnight, we went to the stores. Uh, Apparently, everybody went to the stores on their own, picked up the books, and then all had to leave like early the next morning for this work-related camping trip. And so anytime we were not doing any group activity, we were all in our tents reading. (laughs) Okay, well, the reason I ask, I know we're starting the seventh Harry Potter book today, but the fifth Harry Potter book, I happened to be in Illinois, so I thought we may have gone to the same big party. No, Um, I unfortunately didn't get to go. Nevertheless, it's exciting to uh, meet you now and talk with you now. Yes. As we mentioned uh, just a moment ago, we are starting the seventh Harry Potter book, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, and we will be reading this week, or we have read, to discuss chapter one, which is called The Dark Lord Ascending. 
So guys, this is it. This is the Harry Potter book. This is the final one. Book seven. How do we feel about this? Well, since it is my favorite book in the series, I'm very pumped. I mean, it's bittersweet, right? Like starting off the last book Mm. of this discussion that started many, many moons ago. Mm. But I've been waiting for this for a very long time. I'm very excited. It must be a nice feeling to be able to discuss your favorite Harry Potter book. It is, indeed. Mm. I'm definitely excited about it. It has been a long road to get here, and we still have a long ways to go. Um, But, yeah, like Caleb said, it's definitely bittersweet. Yeah, for for me, this was an incredibly emotional book. I thought J.K. did an awesome job of getting us to feel for the characters, Um, the fear of what was going on, the uncertainty, and then just that that unending camping and how hopeless they felt and <laughs> everything else. I felt it all with them all the way along. Um, it's funny you mentioned hopelessness. I was speaking with somebody today about book seven because it was prior to, to reading. And I was talking about like the lack of direction that they may encounter uh, later in this book is really a metaphor for the lack of direction that all of us encounter in our adolescence, trying to figure out what to do in the future. Um, I don't know, it kind of struck me as being very poignant for being the age that, that I guess I was when I read the last book. Um, but I have my own issues with it. It's definitely not my favorite. But we will talk about all of those. It's wonderful to have this podcast to do that. And there's a note here. Uh, Kat, would you like to talk about our movie watches? Sure. Um, a lot of listeners have been asking if we're going to do two movie watches, and indeed we are. We've discussed it, and we decided that the first will occur after our discussion on Chapter 23, which is the Malfoy Manor chapter, which is when the movie split. So it's more it's about two-thirds of the way through the book, but we figured that the last third is really action-packed, so um, that that was a good time to do it. So be on the lookout for that. We just came off of our very successful, I would say, Half-Blood Prince, very enjoyable Half-Blood Prince movie watch, mm-hmm. um, and book wrap shows, both very, very long episodes of a little <laughs> more, but, but very, very enjoyable to be a part of. And I hope uh, our listeners all enjoyed listening. Um, it'll be exciting to get to, I, I actually do think, um, in spite of what I said about Book seven not being my favorite. I think the seventh and eighth films are the uh, among the strongest or the most strong uh, of the film entries. So I'll definitely be looking forward to those adaptations. I agree with that. But um, let's start this book, shall we? So we always like to start off by talking about the synopsis, the dedication, and kind of our overall first impressions, memories about the book. Um, but in true cat fashion, I like to go over just a little bit of history as well. Yay! Yay! So, as we all know, the Deathly Hallows title was released to the public on December 21st, 2006, via the little door on J.K. Rowling's old website. It was Christmas-themed Hangman Puzzle. Miss that door. Miss that hangman. Yeah. It was really great. I I lament it constantly. That door was Uh, my life. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Was there anybody whose jkrowling.com was their, like, website, their homepage on their browser? Um... I don't know if I think MuggleNet was still my homepage. So oh, yeah, 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 mine too. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so behind that door, along with the Deathly Hallows title, we also um, got two other potential titles that Joe was considering at the time. So Harry Potter and the Elder Wand, and Harry Potter and the Peveril Quest. So, are we glad she picked the one she picked? Absolutely, especially if those are the other. Like those are those are fine titles. Um, 
but yeah, like you have to wrap this story up. Like the, it's the whole thing working behind it is this battle against death. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of, a lot of things that are really impactful about it being the deathly hallows. So I'm glad with that decision. Yeah. Uh, especially if you look at the overall theme of the books being life and death, um, mm. to have death in the title, it, uh, I think I remember it just feeling like it prepared us for that, that we were going to be seeing more than one death per this book. Especially when the first book is all about extending, li- like the first book title is extending, extending life. Um, well not indefinitely, but yeah. you know, prolonging life. And here we have a, a the last book about that's really um, interesting. challenging death. So I think it's appropriate. I'd never thought of it that way before. That makes total sense. Yeah, good point. Mm-hmm. So on the night of the launch, the day of the book release, J.K. Rowling participated in an all-night book signing and reading at the Natural History Museum in London with about 1,700 guests, which is crazy. And then she embarked on a tour in October of 2007 over in the U.S., over here. And that included the famous Carnegie Hall in New York City event where she said and proclaimed that Dumbledore is gay. So it's been our almost, wow, almost um, eight years already since that has come out. Yeah. Well, I was, I remember being in London for book seven, but it was not, unfortunately, where J.K. Rowling was. Uh, we probably couldn't get tickets, but there was a live uh, MuggleCast podcast at Waterstones in Piccadilly Circus, and uh, people t- we actually took up the third and fourth floor of that bookshop uh, to all talk about the end of Harry Potter, um, or in general what we thought was going to happen in the last book. And I just remember getting the book, um, seeing some of my best friends around me in tears because it was all ending and then going back to the hotel room and spending, staying up all night reading it. Um, that's, uh, that's my fond sort of memories, fond memory. And, memories. um, in October when Dumbledore was out at, I, I was in Australia at the time and I was not anywhere near New York, but the news <laughs> hit, hit and it hit big and it was big. like within an hour of that actually happening, it was all over everywhere. Yeah. Really kind of the first big piece of, uh, JK Rowling, news um from that tour as well yeah certainly like the first post-canon thing too that she's tried to do as well before Pottermore. Mm -hmm. well i guess speaking of things coming out at events and trying to keep them a secret or not oh nice transition oh thanks for deathly hallows bloomsbury reportedly invested about 10 million pounds in an attempt to keep the book and the book's contents secure until the release date um in the week before its release, a number of texts that you know were purporting to be genuine leaks appeared in various forms. On July 16th, a set of photographs representing all 759 pages of the U.S. edition was leaked and fully transcribed prior to the official release date. The photographs later appeared on websites and peer-to-peer networks, not MuggleNet for the record, and leading Scholastic <laughs> to seek a, susp- a subpoena in order to identify the source, which... Oh, everyone remembers that time of trying not to be spoiled for this book. This was just like in, it actually happened with book six too. I mean, maybe not in the same form, but people working at MuggleNet, I mean, they just, you, you can't, you can't not go to your email inbox. Yeah. And uh, I remember one particular Kevin Steck um, received and read some of uh, what, what was supposed to be book seven and, um, (laughs) The rest of us went back to the hotel room after the live event. All he needed to do was open the book to the first page, 
read the first few sentences to know that the copy he had been sent early was legit. <laughs> so oh. he uh he had already <laughs> read a good portion. I can't remember if it was the whole book, but he had read a good portion of Deathly Hallows um prior to actually getting the book because it turned out that whoever it was actually had a leaked copy, but but I fortunately was not um spoiled at all. Um and I think most of us uh <sighs> had a lot better experiences than uh those poor people that we talked about recently in the line for the the sixth book oh yes <laughs> um the seventh book yeah we were able to kind of come to the conclusion on our own in our own way and that was quite special i'm surprised kevin read those pages i am too i don't know that dude sometimes <laughs> i wouldn't have read them personally he did i think he was he, he wanted he wanted to know Needed to know, huh? Yep. I stayed away from anything other than the J.K. Rowling officially released stuff. Because you want that impact of reading it then. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Also, as we all know, um, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows was, and still is, as of March of this year anyway, the fastest selling book in history. Woo! Um, I know, it's pretty great. Um, it sold 8.3 million copies in the first 24 hours. That equates to about 96 books a second, or 345,833 books an hour. Which it's pretty crazy. Crazy. The math is staggering. I know, it's insane. Um, of course, Joe also still holds the record for highest annual earnings for a children's author, um, and she reached about three hundred million between two thousand seven and two thousand eight. Um, and that was back back in two thousand eight. We know that she has since kind of dropped off the list and gone back on the list and dropped off the list because of all the money she donates to charity. So right. Um, and uh, just one more stat here. As of June 2008, nearly a year after it was published, worldwide sales of the book were reportedly around 44 million. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't actually fathom 44 million books being in existence. Hmm. There must be weird stats somewhere about how high that stacks or how many times that can wrap around the earth. That's, that <laughs> yeah. must be somewhere on the internet. I feel like I could measure the book right now and, and figure that out. <laughs> Go for it. You have to the end of the episode. Oh, great. I don't have a ruler. Are you good at math? I'm pretty good at math. I mean, oh, okay. I have a calculator. Cool. Well, there you go. So now we're going to talk a little bit about the descriptions for this book and the jackets. So as we all know, the U.S. description is really kind of a non-description. It says, we now present the seventh and final installment of the epic tale of Harry Potter. That's it. Um, I have to say I was pleased with this U.S. description. I wouldn't have been if it were any other book. Like yeah. we we've talked about how other countries uh, or maybe even the UK description is sometimes lacking in previous books or does not just fails to capture the excitement that we Americans have uh, for Harry Potter. But this one, they were just like, nope, we're going to wrap it up. We're not going to say anything. And here you go. It's uh, here's the book. Like no summary could possibly uh, live up to anybody's expectations. It's just like, yep, here's the final book. There you go. You waited. Yeah, and I completely agree. And you just want to dive right into the book. I did not want to read the jacket flaps. <laughs> yeah, if if the summary of the book had been uh, Harry kills Voldemort after a long protruded battle at Hogwarts, I don't think anybody would have. I, I wouldn't have noticed because I went straight to the chapters. Yeah, I can't think of anything appropriate to write in the jacket pocket without. Spoilers, and I think that's the one big thing as we just you know learned about that they were trying to avoid. They so. should have just put scar somewhere in the book. 
so she's just been Scar. I also don't think they could have given a better description to make me start sobbing before I start reading the book. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) like, I need clear eyes to read this, thanks. Um, Yeah, yeah, that's true. But but actually, wait, so the UK description actually had more than the US. Yes, Eric, you're right. The UK description is significantly longer. It's actually a few sentences. It says, Harry is waiting in Privet Drive. The Order of the Phoenix is coming to escort him safely away without Voldemort and his supporters knowing, if they can. But what will Harry do then? How can he fulfill the momentous and seemingly impossible task that Professor Dumbledore has left him? I really don't see much point to it. <laughs> I don't see a problem with it. <laughs> like, Yeah, it's definitely not spoilery, but... It, it actually kind of mirrors the book six uh, summary, if we're being I was honest. just like, thinking that. Cause waiting, it's only... waiting in Privet Drive, mention of yeah. Dumbledore... Um, it really only summarizes the first chapter, much like the Half Blood Prince one does. Well, and that, and we speculated whether or not, and I think it is, it is confirmed that like certain people only got the first chapter to be able to provide these summaries. I think like the U.S. publisher only received, I mean, not the U.S. publisher, but like whoever was writing the descriptions. And I just learned that that is actually Arthur Levine for the U.S. editions. By the way, mm-hmm. I asked Cheryl. And oh. um, and she confirmed so that he wrote the summary or he wrote the book jackets. Oh, yes. cool. So I would think he would have the entire book. Yeah, he certainly does. The U.S. has never suffered from right. uh, insight into the entire books. I think it was the U.K. books that always lacked yeah. um, in that. So um, we will get into the dedication now, which is is very nice. It's in the shape of a lightning bolt um, for those. I think is it the same way in the U.K. one? I am not sure. I'm sure I have it, uh, the UK book. I can't imagine it would be different, the dedication. Um, Uh, But anyway, it says, The dedication of this book is split seven ways. To Neil, to Jessica, to David, to Kenzie, to Di, to Anne, and to you. If you have stuck with Harry until the very end. Ah, it's sweet. Split Um, seven ways. Which is, I'll get to that in a second, which is funny. So, um... We have a little bit about all the dedications on MuggleNet, so I, I looked it up because I wanted to, you know, talk about it here. It says the seven-way split refers to some of those, of course, the June, that June, that Joe has shared her life with. So obviously, Doctor Neil Murray is her husband. Jessica, David, and Mackenzie are her children. Di is Joe's younger sister, and Anne, obviously Joe's mother, who died at the age of forty-five um, from MS. And Joe's mother obviously didn't know about the book since she had died so early on, but Joe has said that her death had a profound influence on how the series was written. And the final dedication is obviously to all of us fans who have made Harry's journey kind of their own. And the seven-way split refers to obviously the number of books in the series and Voldemort's horcruxes, which he had split his soul into seven, but really not because it's really eight. Yeah, but it's cute. It's really, really cute. It is cute. I like it. You know what's not cute, though? What? Epigraphs. <laughs> there was anyone surprised to see these in this book? Yes. I didn't know they were here. I must have skipped right past them the first time while reading. Wait, did you for, did you forget they were here? Yes, absolutely. 100% did not realize until I turned on my audiobook of this chapter and Jim Dale started reading these poems or these epigraphs and I'm just like what is he talking about? This is this is that. I was waiting for chapter one, the Dark Lord ascending, and instead it was this uh, quote from Iclesius. I- Aeschylus. Aeschylus. Thank you. Um, good. Thanks. I had no idea how to say that when I read it in a minute. So yeah, yeah, that's yeah. good. But but anyway, but in general, this was the first time that 
she does. You know, I think her cuckoo's calling. Maybe the casual vacancy even has these. It does. Um, but I think it's clearly the first Harry Potter book that had these. Mm-hmm. Well, let's um, let's read and discuss for a minute. Yeah. All right. So the first one says, "Oh, the torment bred in the race, the grinding stream of death, and the stroke that hits the vein, the hemorrhage none can staunch, the grief, the curse no man can bear." But there is a cure in the house, and not outside it, no, not from others, but from them, their bloody strife. We sing to you, dark gods beneath the earth. Now hear, you blissful powers underground, answer the call, send help. Bless the children, give them triumph now. Aeschylus, the Libation Bearers. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what do we think about that? So for me, every time I read it, it seems to be, um, well, I think it's pretty like clear in the beginning that like it's dealing with death. So obviously that connects with the book. Um, the line that always stands out to me, um, is, but there is a cure in the house and not outside it. No. So that there is a cure to death, to this, um, strife that they're facing, but they can't go out outside of the house, outside of like a single space to find the cure. Um, it has to be something like within. And so that's always symbolized Harry to me in the mo- um, in my mind. Um, mm. In the last line, bless the children, give them triumph now. So Harry's the child who must be the cure to the death. Um, so it's all about, he has to be the answer and the, the sacrifice. Wow. That's deep. It's true. I, I honestly, I'd never give them too much of a thought. I, I read them and was kind of too excited to read the book. Like, at least I noticed them, though, unlike Eric. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to raise yourself above. I mean, minimally, like 1%. No, I think Caleb's reading uh, is is the best that I've heard. So, um. I did, uh, I, I looked it up uh, online oh. about this uh, passage, and it's a Greek a tragedy play. Mm-hmm. And uh, the play actually revolves around um, this Cassandra, who is a prophesier and and was not believed, and she actually gave the prophecy that caused this person to, you know, um, go that he had to kill, avenge his father's death, and stuff like that. But I just thought it was, you know, fitting that it was a Cassandra who was yeah. the seer. Yeah. So yeah, Cassandra in like um, Greek um, dramas that that person who was never believed like you mentioned and gave the warning but was the warning was never heeded and it came to pass anyway um i haven't really like thought about it in that context um that's probably why i think that's why joe like made a specific cut of the the piece and put a very specific part um few stanzas here that is very specific though and you know we know joe does nothing arbitrarily so Um, Well, let's read the second one. It says, Death is but crossing the world, as friends do the seas. They live in one another still. For they must needs be present, that love and live in that which is omnipresent. In this divine glass they see face to face, and their converse is free, as well as pure. This is the comfort of friends, that though they may be said to die, yet their friendship and society are, in the best sense, ever present, because immortal. Huh. William Penn, More Fruits of Solitude. I really like this one, um, for sure. And uh, just the idea of the ones we die never truly leave us, Harry, um, mm. seems to be said in a little bit, little bit flashier way here. Yep. 
So it's about resurrection, I guess. Um, whether you believe that your friends will always be with you in your heart, um, or the literal resurrection uh, using the stone. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's it's an interesting way to start, uh, as is the chapter, of course. But uh, in 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 general, for me, it is not quite telling me as a reader, as a first time reader of this book. Though I'm not, but as a first time reader, it's not telling me that this book will have anything happy to it at all. I mean, the the end of the book, it's not like book six ended with a lot of hope, um, but at least. There's there's something very solemn about about both of these boats about having them in the beginning of the book. It's kind of like I don't know. It would put me off of off kilter or maybe unbalance me a little bit in going in um, because both of the quotes focus heavily on th- death mm-hmm. and the beyond and and yeah immortal immortality. Yeah, I mean, if I were reading so much into this that I thought Sirius might come back, it maybe it would give me hope because um, mm. I, I think. Uh, I was thinking they would revisit at some point um, the ministry, which of course they do, but not in the way that I expected. I kind of was hoping for more Department of Mysteries stuff. Um, uh, yeah, that so would have been nice. I thought it'd be nice if Sirius came back, but uh, it was not to be. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about chapter one of the of the book uh, now. If you are reading for the first time, cool. Um, We're about to run it for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Much. We do. We do discuss these chapters uh, using insight for how the overall uh, has happened, and we quote sources from Pottermore and things that have happened since then. So, um, please be forewarned if any of you are out there. Um, yeah, let's talk about chapter one. Chapter one: The Dark Lord ascending. So we always begin these chapters with a summary, and I wrote this one, so go easy on me. Uh, Two men, Snape and Yaxley, apparate just outside the gates to Malfoy Manor. They enter the drawing room where an unconscious human figure is suspended above the table. Sitting down, Snape informs Voldemort of the protections surrounding Harry Potter. Voldemort asks Yaxley where they're at on plans to overthrow the Ministry, and just so we're sure that Voldemort's not an awesome guy... He takes the time to torture his own hosts, the Malfoys, and Charity Burbage uh, while spewing pure blood hoopla. Hoopla. So. Nice. Nice. Thanks. It's good. Good use. Yeah, I tried. So <laughs> this, in the fashion of previous Harry Potter books that have started without Harry um, mm. or in perspectives that were otherwise, uh, this kind of continues that trend and sort of the first point here. It, it, the chapter starts with Snape, um, the character who was last seen, of course, running away from Harry um, following the death, following his murder of Dumbledore. And, and thank God she did start with it. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. Like, we had all spent two years, like, debating about him. Imagine if we had to wait several chapters and to read about the, him. That was really mm-hmm. the big thing is, like, and I, I, my question is if this chapter really gives away his intentions because... There were books written about it. I mean, the Great Snape Debate, Borders tried to release this. Uh, they did release a book mm-hmm. dedicated specifically to the loyalties of Severus Snape and evidence either way. I think, if I remember correctly, the book was split in the middle 
and each side was upside down from the other. So you could read all of the evidence that he was a good guy against all the evidence that he was a bad guy, whichever one you preferred, you could read and, and like have some more evidence. So I, I just remember that this, the whole Snape thing, obviously following his murder of Dumbledore was huge. And now we see Voldemort, uh, in this chapter seating Snape at his right hand and Snape is betraying yet more information that's, uh, about basically about how to get Harry. And does that mean, I mean, in this chapter, isn't Joe saying, okay, y'all, you wondered for two years about this. Uh, I think it should be clear that Snape's a bad guy. Or is it still ambiguous? I think she's trying to lead us in that direction. I think she flip-flops a lot, which obviously is the point. But yes, I think right off the bat, she's she's trying to get you to believe that Snape is a bad guy. Because otherwise, kind of the reveal later on isn't as impactful. It's also like the natural step, right? Like we see him running off with Draco, um, having just done, you know, Dumbledore in. And, you know, (laughs) we, so the next step is to see like, where does, how how does he like go from there? Obviously some time has passed, right? But the next step is for us as readers to see where he is with Voldemort and how he's succeeded in getting back in the the fold, the right hand man even. Well, I think too, if, if book six was, or were Snape's, book if that was snape's book this book should be voldemort's book this book should be the book i mean because books like set up a lot of voldemort and how he would fall and this book with this chapter seeing him at full power really poised he's having discussions like basically overthrowing the government of the wizarding world um he's in pretty good shape and so to see that power and prestige be slowly deconstructed throughout the book um, it's something that I think this chapter hints at, and it's like basically setting setting us all, all up for as readers. Yep. Um, and of course, you do actually see Draco um, as well in this chapter. They're both obviously key players. Um, but before we go on to sort of the Malfoys and things, Snape is going out of his way to state accurately how Harry will be... Uh, transported and we know this from future chapters but he's actually heard otherwise i guess it is um or another wizard no another wizard a squat wizard at the table says like he has basically misinformation which he got from dollish um and snape actually says no that's false it's it's not as if snape is playing this game with any sort of hesitation he is absolutely telling the whereabouts of harry and he's i guess going out of his way to put Harry in danger. The the quote that, that got me this time, and I had to think about it for a minute because I, it's been a while since I've read Deathly Hallows. It's on page four, big page four, um, where Voldemort says, good, very good, and this information comes from the source we discussed, said Snape. Um, I know we know who that is. Somebody remind me. It's uh, Dumbledore's portrait. You see it in the memories. Snape is getting the information about where Harry's being transported by Dumbledore's portrait? Yes. Huh. Which leaves me to believe that somehow maybe orders of the Phoenix members go into the, say, Snape, could you step aside? We need to go into the office and chat with Dumbledore's portrait. <laughs> I don't but know. But you do see that in one of the memories. I did double check that, check that um, no kidding. before this podcast. Um, and it is one of the memories. But I'm not quite certain that that's the source that Voldemort 
thinks Snape has. Right, right. Yeah, he would have to right. be saying something else. Like, and also to your question, though, Eric, um, like that Snape is, you know, giving the legit information. We also don't know that yet at this point, right? So, like, mm-hmm. here we, I think, I still think, like, as readers, we're inclined to believe that Snape is the the correct one as far as w- which of the Death Eaters um, has the right information. Um, but I was still, I remember the first time reading, like, I was still kind of guessing. And I think that, like, increases that whoa what is, what's going on like is he is what's he telling the truth or is he actually about to screw voldemort over where okay then who does voldemort think snape's getting this information from i don't think that's ever confirmed yeah yeah i don't think so my guess know. is that like i was thinking about this and i don't think there's anyone in the order that voldemort would think he could get um, reliable information from unless so I thought of two things. One, that he's like paying off Mandungus Fletcher, um, mm. or that he is um, using the Imperius curse on someone. Yeah, that was my guess, that he was Imperiusing and questioning someone on the staff who's a member of the Order of the Phoenix. And now that Snape has killed Dumbledore, it's not as though the rest of the Order would talk to him like, right. and volunteer. Right. Because that all of them still think he's bad information yeah i mean they, that unless he's somehow hidden the fact that they know that he was the one who killed dumbledore then i don't think it's uh very realistic that he would be getting that information from any of the order members really well now that caleb said mundungus um it was mundungus's idea right to do the seven potters um perhaps. i believe so yeah. i believe so yeah. okay so that would mean I guess Mundungus is entirely plausible because he's, I guess, not afraid to go to the dark side a bit. That Mundungus, though, yeah, it could be. I think that's the only plausible source unless it's somebody that we just don't know about. Or somebody that we're forgetting and the and the listeners are going to scream at us. Yeah, perhaps we're forgetting. I uh, won't dwell too yeah. much more on it, uh, but we shall indeed move on. So we talked about Snape. Let's talk about where he is. He is at Malfoy Manor, which for the first time in seven Harry Potter books, we finally get to see this is something where, I mean, Malfoy Manor has been mentioned before. If you realize Dobby served there first, he used to serve the Malfoys, and Harry at times has sent Mr. Weasley to go and check under the drawing room floor. Um, And now we're in the drawing room. We're actually there. There's peacocks strutting around. There's large wrought iron gates and lots and lots of hedges. And fun fact, the Malfoy Manor is, in fact, halfway between King's Cross Station and Hogsmeade Station, according to Universal Orlando. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's very strategically located. You know, uh, Draco is actually going out of his way to board the train. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, (laughs) no, no, in general, does Malfoy Manor, and I'm not even talking about the film film adaptation, which, of course, looked good. Um, but does it live up to expectations? Is there enough of it here to be like, oh yeah, these guys are living pretty well? Or what are your sort of your thoughts on this setting for the opening of this book? Well, I think Peacocks, um, it's, it's funny because, you know, Yaxley says he always did himself well, Lucius Peacocks. But I mean, (laughs) I kind of live in the country and my friends have neighbors who have peacocks and they definitely don't live in a big manner like this. So, um, this time around that made me laugh quite a bit. Oh yeah. Um, I think it's because like, 
It's an albino one, right? Yeah, so it pure just seems white like, peacocks. Like yeah, rare. could be. So it was a rare breed of peacock. Yeah, it's super yeah. exotic. It, it seems like it's like very rare. That's kind of always the feel I got from it. The thing about the Malfoys in this chapter, though, is that for as albino as the peacocks are, they are said to be even paler. Um, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's no direct correlation between them and the peacocks, except to say that Lucius is described as being very pale. Draco, I think at one point, falls off of his chair. And this family, their, their home is host to all of the Death Eaters. This is the headquarters for Voldemort. And if you notice some of the protections that have been placed around, for instance, uh, on the gate, they have to basically, I think this is determined later, you need a dark mark to enter. Yeah, yeah. They hold up their their arms as they walk through, which is really cool. Yeah. It's kind of, cool. it um, reminded me of the charm or the spell that was put on the staircase up to the astronomy tower at the end of the last book. Oh, yeah. Actually, that's probably the same spell now that you mentioned that. Um, probably. I would not have remembered that had we not just read that chapter. I just uh, I just like that they walk through wrought iron gates like 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 smoke, like passing through smoke, like, yes, like catching exactly. smoke with your bare hands. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but, One uh, thing I saw when I read that is that um, with the way that they the way that it's written that they raised their left arms as in a salute. I couldn't help but think of the Nazis saluting Hitler. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that mm. word is chosen very carefully by Joe. Mm-hmm. I think uh, so, too. I wouldn't disagree. Um, so, as we mentioned, uh, or as I mentioned earlier, the kind of conversation that they're having about actually overthrowing the ministry is actually a little bit frightening because you always imagine Voldemort as being hell-bent on world domination, and but, but now we're actually starting to see it. Now we're seeing... Uh, they're basically opening up. All the Death Eaters have little date books, and they're opening them up. And <laughs> the, the one Death Eater's like, "How's next Saturday for you?" And Voldemort's like, mm, "Well, next Saturday, I'm not sure we can do it by then. Hmm, perhaps we should get Potter while he's traveling." It's it's just like this big meeting about killing the Minister for Magic. This is the most important XR wizard in the entire uh, Wizarding world, and they have now infiltrated. I mean, just the fact that they were all able to laugh, all the Death Eaters are able to laugh about uh, the order being correct, that, that they've infiltrated the Ministry is actually a bit terrifying. And I think the fact that it's underplayed or played in such a jovial way where they're all laughing about it is supposed to be a little bit more unnerving than if you were to hear it from the Order side of things. And also because it's being done in such an organized way, right? Like Voldemort is considered... You know, the timeline of it, not being able to get it done within a certain amount of time, not going after um, the Minister for Magic without um, everything being in place. Like, he's very um, methodical about what he's doing, which is not really a side of him we've gotten to see before. Hmm. I think he learned a lot his first attempt. Right. Yeah. You know, he says as much. He, the Dark Lord... I guess I get tired of calling him Voldemort. <laughs> the Dark Lord is is really he he refers to his past mistakes where it where it comes to Harry, and he actually I guess reprieves them of any of blame by saying that he himself is most at fault for the fact that Harry still lives. So he simultaneously wants to be the one to kill Harry and realizes the uh, problem that that poses to I guess his plans. Do you really think he's giving his Death Eaters a reprieve? Well, I think the dialogue really would support he seems to 
as I, from what I recall, the dialogue says that each of them expected to be blamed uh, for the fact that Harry was still out there, and he does not lay blame on 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 them. Um, so I would say that's pretty generous, considering the bands all together, and they could totally um, there could be more deaths in this chapter. Uh, I honestly think that that Voldemort is quite happy because he has a plan, because he has what he believes to be reliable information for the stomping out of Harry Potter, um, that he is feeling generous. It's like the Voldy hug in the movie. I think he's feeling generous <laughs> right now, and uh, he's he's not uh, in the mood to necessarily torment any more than just the Malfoys. See, I, I kind of read it the opposite. Uh- I read it that um, the whole diatribe, the couple of, you know, paragraphs where he's talking to himself, I read it more as him, um, what's the right word, not kind of, um, obviously he's blaming himself, but more like he's amping himself up to finish it and finish it soon and proper and no more no more effing around um i need yeah. to do this you know i i don't i don't care what it takes i don't care what i have to do or who i have to f over i mean not that he didn't think that before but i saw this more as kind of a pep talk to be honest yeah um i saw in this one thing that i noticed is voldemort seemed to want to keep them right on the edge he starts that conversation off like you folks have failed me it's my fault then he turns to Bellatrix and he praises her, and then he says, "Yeah, but your your niece just married a, a werewolf," <laughs> the, and right. she like winds up almost like in tears and horrified. And then he says, "Well, we just need to cut off the the diseased part of our family tree." And she's like, "Yeah," and then she feels all better again. And he seems to keep playing with everybody. In all of his Death Eaters as he gives them just enough praise to build them up and then right when he gets them on the edge he slams them down and then builds them back up again it's it's like uh, you know a cat playing with mice yeah it's a sick version of a pep talk yeah really well and it's interesting that he wants to get this over with with Harry at the beginning of the book which we know takes him until the end of the book to actually accomplish but he's he's just sort of planning um, to strike quite early into the school year Mm-hmm. He is. It's against type for him. Uh, you know, I will <laughs> say we got a voicemail um, on the subject that we'd like to play now uh, from Jake Ponser, and it is uh, regarding the Death Eaters and Harry. So let's have a listen. Hey, hello, more. It's Jake Ponser here from the uh, main site. During my read of the new chapter for Deathly Hallows, I thought about something that I never really considered before. That is how absolutely horrible all the Death Eaters um, in this chapter must feel about Voldemort's obsession with Harry. They're all just sitting around this table listening to Voldemort ramble on about Harry Potter must die and how he himself must do it, but it must feel annoying and maybe even disappointing for them. They probably all got on board with Voldemort and his cause since they either hate muggles like he does or maybe they just want a position of power when he takes over the world since he's such a powerful wizard. But unfortunately for them, Voldemort's obsessed with killing Harry, who really poses no threat to him. So all these Death Eaters who hopped on board either a few decades ago when he first came into power or right after his rebirth in Book 4 are following the orders here of a paranoid psycho who will do anything to kill just a 16-year-old. They're reduced to henchmen and is completely 
useless task. Um, in fact, I'm kind of a bit surprised now that I look back on it that no one bails out on Voldemort at any point and that, you know, no mutinies take place. He's a really powerful wizard, but he's just one guy. And it really seems like only Bellatrix is really devoted enough to him to uh, stick by his side if all the Death Eaters rose up. So I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this, and I look forward to your reread of the book. It's my favorite one of the series. Thanks. So, what do we think? I think it's a good point, right? These, um, I don't think I've ever really thought about it like this before, but... I th- so we brought up just a second ago uh, Voldemort's sort of monologue. I don't know. You probably wouldn't call it a monologue, but where he's answering himself about um, his the past problems being more about his mistakes um, than Harry's success, and it's really just been Harry's luck. Um, thinking about it now, yeah, it, it, he seems just way too focused um, on Harry and. Not so much about the mission that a lot of these Death Eaters joined up for. Um, it would have been interesting to like maybe get a little side conversation of a couple of them, um, like saying, "Gosh, she's going at it again." Like, what do we what do we, we sign up for? Can you um, believe and then, like he show? walks into the room, or better yet, Bellatrix walks into the room, and you know they all like <laughs> hurry to silence themselves or something. You know, for me, I think at least for probably half of these Death Eaters in the room, including Lucius, Harry has personally thwarted them. Mm. I, I mean, I really think at this point, the battle f- against Harry would have more support than it would have had at the beginning. Um, I mean, then again, Harry is the one who made the Dark Lord go away for that whole time. Uh, so I think his supporters would naturally want to thwart the boy. I think at some point, the fact that he continues to escape would maybe make them give him like a pass and be like, let's just move on to other things. But the the fact that Harry has personally caused, uh, for instance, Lucius's you know arrest and all of the trouble in the ministry, I think now more and more Death Eaters would actually be for the cause of destroying Harry, um, so long as they can be part of a plan that seems like it's going to work. Yeah, that makes sense. Harry's definitely added to the list of people who hate him <laughs> at this point, as mm-hmm. at least in the uh, Death Eater camp. So. Yeah, and knowing that this plan seems to be pretty strong or the evidence seems to be pretty strong that they can go really soon and and kill Harry, maybe that's just I, – I, so I think there's probably more acceptance and agreement in this room than there maybe would have been years before. And we do learn that it's not exactly easy to leave Lord Voldemort's um, kind of camp, as they say. Yeah. And just because, you know, when we hear Regulus is – Yeah, the only way out is death. Pretty much. So we hope that uh, answered your question. Jake, thank you for sending in your voicemail. Uh, we'll tell others how you can send in voicemails. It's kind of fun to play those on the show. Um, so that'll be at the end. But I wanted to bring up – so guys, we were all recently at um, GeekyCon in Florida. And while I was there, uh, I attended this panel on Peter Pettigrew. And uh, it was very interesting. It was about – whether there's any sympathy at all that can be reserved for him. And without going into too much detail, I have to suffice to say, Peter Pettigrew has been on my mind uh, these last 10 days or so, ever since coming back. And so I had to ask, Peter Pettigrew is uh, appears in this chapter, actually. Um, Voldemort calls on him. And here's a direct quote from the book. So he says, uh, this is after they hear a scream from down below. 
and Voldemort asks whether or not he's supposed to keep our guest quiet. He says, yes, my lord. And it says, gasped a small man seated halfway down the table, who had been sitting so low in his chair that it appeared at first glance to be unoccupied. Now he scrambled from his seat and scurried from the room, leaving nothing behind him but a curious gleam of silver. So, apart from playing up this silver hand that he's got, which I believe some of the prominent theories were all that it would play a very big role uh, mm -hmm. in this book, just knowing that he, Pettigrew, is sitting slumped, kind of half down in his chair, is this a metaphor for him being over his head? Does he not really want to be there? What exactly is, is this situation here? Yes. Um, All of the above, yes. Okay. <laughs> But does that give you guys any sympathy for him? The fact that he's uh, he's attending this Death Eater meeting where Charity Burbage, a, a teacher at Hogwarts, is being tortured and killed. The fact that he's there should indict him to endless uh, lack of empathy. But do we feel sorry for him or should we feel sorry for him? The fact that he clearly is too weak to stand up and go away and do something else with his life. Yeah, I... Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, he put himself there. As far as I'm concerned, you know, you dig your own grave. So, <laughs> and he kind of did. Didn't he? <laughs> he wanted to be near the power, and that's what he got. And he betrayed friends and Twice. saw to it that they got killed. And he doesn't seem to have really done anything at all to try and redeem himself, really. And uh, I think he just knows the only way out is death, so he's just stuck trying to hide in the shadows and not be noticed. Did anybody actually defend Pettigrew at that panel you went to? There was a lot in that panel in this short really? period of time. I think um, it was mostly people trying to see, because he does not gain a whole lot of pleasure from the Dark Deeds, and he joined Voldemort more out of fear than out of uh, believing in his cause that perhaps he's a more sympathetic character than certain other Death Eaters. Well, okay, yes, than other Death Eaters he, he is, but he's still yeah. vile. Well, one of the <laughs> things that came out of it, I mean, he betrayed Harry and Potters and everybody, not just once, but twice. I mean, he is the entire reason Voldemort was found and resurrected and can exist to do this torture. So it's just interesting that Joe still has, you know, in, in the beginning of this book, that description of him as as having to not basically not want to be there um but then again maybe it's just commenting on the larger picture which is that even the malfoys don't want to be there and it's their own darn house um mm -hmm. so maybe it's just that once they've all finally gotten what they wished for in voldemort's return to power they realize that it's kind of a, a bitter pill to swallow I was a really shy kid in elementary school, and so I was that person sitting at the back of the class, like slumped down as low Aww. as possible, just so teacher wouldn't see me. And I think that's part of it here. I think he's just kind of trying to disappear, and he doesn't want Voldemort to remember that he's there, or talk to him, or look at him, or expect anything from him. I am in my room, pretending, making no noise, and pretending <laughs> that I do not exist. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> exactly. Nice analogy. Let's uh, exactly. let's leave the uh, or let's let's keep on with the uh, the Wormtail Harry uh, parallels here, um, if we can while reading this book. I don't have a feeling there'd be a great amount of them. But, uh, <laughs> I'm starting to think about Wormtail in ways I never have before. I, actually, just in general, more than I ever have before. So we'll say that. Um, then, of course, so the discussion moves on to this 
very hypocritical pure blood mania and we find out that actually the reason that uh charity burbage is has been brought here is not only because she's a teacher at hogwarts and is a muggle studies professor but because she recently practiced her freedom of speech and freedom mm-hmm. of press in writing an article that was uh incendiary to voldemort's uh sensibilities i guess is is a way to say it and i have to say if if she had known that Voldemort's uh, mom, you know, basically married a muggle, uh, that she should have used her dying breath to say that in front of everybody and really point him out. But it's it's pretty scary how, like, the conviction that Voldemort has just in some of these words and some of what he says to his fellow Death Eaters about having to excise the tumor and remove all the stains from the wizarding world in general. This is something that this guy is actually preaching right now. And I guess it took me aback because for me, I'm, I'm thinking of Voldemort as a more calculated, you know, less just about blood purity. Cause that seems ridiculous that even he says and admits to the blood being, um, diluted a little bit throughout the years, which I think Arthur Weasley or Dumbledore had said out of necessity. Um, so I don't know. It's kind of weird for him to be on this, uh, soapbox here about this, but he is, and he uses it as, I guess, a reason to kill Charity. So what are you guys' kind of reactions to – the other books have death at the very back half. This book has death in the first chapter. I find it odd that that's the reason Charity is there. I feel like there has to be some other hidden reason. I mean, there's – probably more than one person in the world who's ever written an article about wizards marrying muggles you know why 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 her why charity yeah i, I think that's that's um has to do with the uh, audio boom from hufflepuff scheme oh somebody's been reading the doc yes. so we got a <laughs> we did manage to get a a very uh, clever kind of very interesting audio boom which i guess we'll bring up now uh from leah um hufflepuff skein and let's uh let's actually play that this is also this is directly related to what we're talking about right now hi all this is leah or hufflepuff skein i haven't been commenting in a while but i'm really glad to be back and i had a bit of a comment slash question for the upcoming chapter discussion chapter one of deathly hallows and really, it's concerning Charity Burbage and how oh-so-awful it is to be witness to her murder in this chapter. But I've been wondering, is she there and is the sort of the extravaganza of her torture, I suppose, in Voldemort's mind, is it a test for Snape? Is it, in Voldemort's view, is this a way to see what Snape's reaction will be to this person who he supposedly is friends, as she says, um, and to really see whether he's on their side or not, and whether he's going to try to save her or flinch or something. I just, I've always seen this as um, more than anything, Voldemort getting his kicks off by killing someone, but also looking for Snape's reaction. Love to hear your thoughts. So, is this murder a further test for Severus Snape? I mean, maybe, but like. Is does Voldemort really think that this would be the thing that would make Snape flinch? I mean, I guess like Snape doesn't have many things he's protecting in life anymore, um, other than himself. So, 
I don't know, like trying to like think, uh, trying to put myself in Voldemort's shoes, if this would be the thing that like some other teacher, that would probably be easy for Snape if he, if Dumbledore did, or excuse me, if Voldemort did suspect, suspect him, it may be easy for Snape to just let her die. I don't mean to say that callously, but yeah. it may be easy for Snape to let her die to keep his cover up. I don't know if this would be the best test. Yeah, it makes me wonder what evidence there is that the two of them got on at all, except for the fact that they were both teachers at Hogwarts. I'm not sure it's it's in a fa- if if that's what Voldemort is using charity for, even marginally. I'm not, how effective is it? Were they actually friends? Yeah. Also, I I feel like he's not really focused on Snape's uh, reaction here. He's focused on his own pure blood mania that he's all the stuff he's spewing. It's coming out of his mouth, rapid fire about how purebloods are going to one day rule the world. Um, you know, and I think furthermore, just the fact that Severus, when, when he first came in, when he and Yaxley first came in, it said Severus, you know, right here, gesturing to his, the seat immediately to his right, seating at the right hand of Voldemort. And, oh, and Yaxley, you, you sit down there somewhere. Yes. You know, the other end of the table is ridiculous. Like how much he values Snape. I would say Snape already succeeded. I would say that the, the death of Dumbledore at Snape's hands absolutely without a doubt solidified his position in Voldemort's hierarchy and that there are no further tests are, are necessary at all. Not even a little bit. Uh, well, I'm going to counter that. Um, in the book, um, Voldemort specifically says, do you recognize our guest Severus? And by having him sitting directly next to him, he can very closely see his expressions. And he specifically, um, when he goes to kill her, um, you know, she's pleading to Severus and she does so three times. And, um, it says tears were pouring from her eyes into her hair. Snape looked back at her quite impassively as she turned slowly away from him. And then it's Avada Kedavra. So Voldemort waited to see Snape's impassive face. And as soon as he saw it, that's it. It's over. The torture's over. Well, ha. Huh. Okay. I like that. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. What you just said there. Um, but also, couldn't it be that he is championing his most loyal supporter, Snape, because he wants to see the pain on Charity's eyes when his man, Snape, does not do anything to stop her death. Isn't it that he is so supremely confident in Snape at that moment that he can torture this woman in yet another way? Yeah, like, he's kind of pulling Snape into his little joke, like, yeah, we're about to, like, kill this lady. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. let's watch her go. Like playing with his food before he eats it. Yeah, that's how I read it. But I definitely see your point. I think, I mean, intentionally, probably it can be read quite a few ways. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. There, there is a line supporting um, your theory, Eric, because it does say there's no mistaking the anger and contempt in Voldemort's voice, um, which I think wouldn't be there if he was testing Snape. Although, oh, I'm, I'm so. Like seventy thirty on it. <laughs> so, before we get away from it, also just the parallel of the language that she uses, Severus, please. Obviously, we just experienced <laughs> yeah. that at the end of Half Blood Prince. Uh, yeah, yeah, very different type of pleading. You know, Dumbledore pleading to kill him because he needed to, and uh, Charity pleading Severus to save her. Very, very different, but the same. I kind of have a comment. Um, 
Okay. Sure. Charity Burbage teaches this class on, uh, you know, muggle studies, which is an elective. So probably the only kids, students that are signing up for it are the ones who are muggle friendly, like Arthur Weasley. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was actually thinking that they could probably really use a mandatory class for all first year students yes. that are muggle born or are raised like Harry on the wizarding life so that they would have more common ground with their wizarding classmates who grew up in that you know harry's completely shocked all the time by like there's wizarding radio there's wizarding <laughs> children's fairy well, tales i was shocked to be um, fair i was shocked that there was a muggle cast reference oh sorry i mean wizarding radio in the uh in the harry potter books um, wizarding 101 oh, okay. so to say yeah, yeah yeah but uh but it could help those uh, students to fit in better with the wizard-born ones so they didn't feel so out uh, outside of the group no I, I i like i mean i think in general muggle studies as we would imagine it should be compulsory or should be more people we see examples especially in book four about how wizards uh could benefit from understanding muggles a little more that the entire wizarding world has completely the wrong idea about certain things muggle related and so that course should actually be Far more prominent, the fact that we've never heard of Charity Burbage, never seen her name, even in a passing mention um, before, kind of shows that, I, I don't know, maybe Dumbledore isn't doing his due diligence as headmaster to make that class, uh, to give that class the proper light that it that it should receive. Because I think people should know a lot more about the much wider, much larger world of muggles. And how badly do we want Joe to write a book from a perspective of a wizard who knows nothing about muggles teaching about mu Oh, Lord. Probably like if pretty If Arthur badly. Weasley wrote the book, it'd be amazing. <laughs> no, but yeah, I mean, I no, I agree, Margie. I mean, um, having children, I, what I had first thought you were going to say is like actually just for the muggle-born children, having them still continue some sort of education about the wider world, you know, because we were talking about how people go to Hogwarts have uh, – what, like a fifth grade reading level, um, you know, in terms of, oh, and, and math level and every other thing is like stunted to the age that they were when they first went to Hogwarts because Hogwarts doesn't have like the gen eds of math, science and, and writing and all of that other stuff that it'd be interesting to continue some of that in some form. Yeah. I've just always imagined that all the wizarding board children have are like homeschooled and they're learning whatever their parents teach them. So they all come into Hogwarts with an extremely limited view of the parent of the world. Yeah. Um, the wizarding world, not only, you know, let alone the muggle world. Well, if uh, you look at, um, the Weasleys, I mean, the Weasleys are obviously our example of a, of wizarding born and raised, um, family. And I mean, I, I guess they were raised in sort of a bubble or a shell. I mean, it's cause they do react, uh, I mean, Ron doesn't know how to use a telephone. There's some other stuff. I'm trying to rack my brain about stuff in the beginning of the Harry Potter books. But I, I really wonder – I'll pose the question of how many other charity Burbages exist at Hogwarts that we've never – by the way, I know I alternate between Burbage and Burbage. I'm I was sorry. about to ask, are we – I'm so sorry. It's, it's, I think it's a Ben thing. It's, I've heard the name pronounced Burbage. And once you hear that really elegant <laughs> pronunciation, you, it never leaves you, I promise. Um, so sorry, everybody. Um, but I wonder how many other charity Burbages there are uh, at Hogwarts that we've never heard of, but that they teach, you know, different subjects. Like, for instance, we know about Professor Sinistra, who teaches is it astronomy, um, but I think we only get like one class ever 
Or um, Vector, right? Professor Vector? Oh, Vector, yeah. Um, some other ones, so... Yeah, I get the feeling there's a lot more classes there, but just because we hear the entire story from Harry's perspective, if he wasn't interested in it, we didn't hear about it. Well, doesn't Hermione take every subject in the third year? She takes, uh, yeah, that includes, I think, Muggle, muggle something, right? Yeah, muggle she does studies. take the yeah, Muggle Studies class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but who knows, were there ex- other electives that were available yeah. fourth year and fifth year right, right. that she yeah. just didn't bother with? The choir. <laughs> Probably. True. Choir. Um, Art class for Dean Thomas. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Well, wasn't there something that uh, Celestina Warbeck's mother um, insisted upon the students, uh, or the school, giving some sort of outlet for Celestina's talents and stuff like that uh, for her to oh, be I able to sing and act and everything. I don't remember that at all, but that would be kind of cool. Michael's the one to ask about that. Yeah, that was on the one. The backstory on Celestina Warbeck was released on Pottermore. I remember that being in there that her mother was pushing the school to huh. um, create these outlets for her daughter to shine in. I mean, o- overall, this this chapter... I think is really a grouping together of the bad guys as they go on their quest to basically achieve world domination. And it's a short chapter. All, all the first few chapters are actually just a couple pages long. Don't take too long to read, but they accomplish the, the setting of the story. It's just, I don't, do you guys feel like it, it properly excites you for Voldemort's attempted takeover? Do you feel, are you, is your blood already rushing for, you know, to get to the final battle when you're reading this? Or, or what are your kind of your thoughts on the chapter as a whole? Oh, I'm just terrified of what's going to happen here. Yeah, I think it's a, it does a really good job of creating this very dark atmosphere, but it doesn't give away too much. Like, you don't really know what, um, what's going to happen beyond this attack on Harry. I mean, probably have a pretty good idea that it's not going to work or else this book would be about 50 pages um <laughs> so yeah it, like it, it sets up um we're getting the most of voldemort we have probably um in a single moment and um the fact that it's the beginning of the book tells us there's a lot of um scurry moments to come yeah it sets a good tone for sure um I was just thinking about, we've talked about this a few times, the circle theory within a book. And do you think the opposing chapter for this would be um, the last chapter or the epilogue? Uh, yeah, I'm not, it's a tough one. I'm not sure. Um, and I don't know the chapters well enough to be able to have like sort of an educated guess. But I definitely think that the stuff with the Malfoys plays itself out throughout the whole book um, or at least comes into importance again when at the end of the book, when Narcissa betrays Voldemort um, mm-hmm. it's, it's something yeah. that her movements, her motions to Lucius beneath the table in this chapter are kind of showing that they're of a remarkably sound mind in rejecting some of the ways that Voldemort is handling everything. Yeah. Well, I- I guess the only reason I ask is because the only thing we didn't touch on a whole lot is, um, you know, Lucius's wand and everything. And the opposite chapter of this, there's 36 chapters. So I believe it would be 36 since epilogue is, you know, part of the story, but not part of the story. Right. Um, And, you know, that's the flaw in the plan where Harry explains the whole reason why the wands never, never worked. So. Oh, okay. But that's really the, I mean... I've just been flipping through the last chapter quickly, and that's kind of the only thing I can really 
um, come up with other than Bellatrix being creepy as hell in that last chapter. So, <laughs> but she's like that all the time. So, I did look up the Lucius's wand, which is Elm with Dragon Heartstring, and on pa- on Pottermore, the Elm is said to be very popular with purebloods. It prefer, uh, prefers presence, magical dexterity, and native dignity, and mm, is very good mm. with like flamboyant spells. And uh, Dragon Heartstring is the most powerful of all the wands, and creates a strong bond with its owner, and is the easiest to turn to the dark arts. And it's just like nailed it. <laughs> I think that's perfectly fitting. Yeah, I like I like that, and I like that the, it's mentioned that at Malfoy Manor there are bushes of yew. And you is yeah. uh, Voldemort's wandwood. Um, that was oh, pretty it cool. says that in the description. Uh, yeah, like right, it's one of the first paragraphs wow. when they're walking past the bushes. It's described. I totally there. missed that. Yeah, and you is the tree that's associated with death. Death. Yeah. Oh yeah, the U hedges muffled the sound. Oh yeah, look at that. You, you know, I really like uh, not to talk about the movie adaptation too much, but the the Lucius Wand scene. Um, in the film and the book happens differently and in the book his wand is not in his cane it's just mm. <laughs> just in his pocket i like how joe even by book seven was able to in her head keep them a little bit separate um but i mean both both are both are interesting but this uh, was there something you wanted to say cat about the wand uh, no i just always really liked that moment oh yeah okay uh, <laughs> ample yeah. opportunity for Voldemort to taunt the Malfoy family in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Which I, I just like, you know, when after Voldemort takes Lucius's wand, Lucius like kind of is like uh, uh, he makes a movement like <laughs> yeah. like Voldemort is going to give him his wand, and it yeah. makes me cringe. Yeah, uh, it's so like, well written in the book. It is. It's just like, oh, you thought I was going to give you my wand, but it's like you just said your wand can't like work against Harry, so why not give Lucius your wand? But that's kind of for me. It's more like, no, Lucius, you're under house arrest. Like, yeah. you don't need your wand because you won't be going out. He's kind of like serious in that way, isn't he? Where oh, he's man. kind of being detained by somebody. I like that a lot. Doesn't want to be detained and then ends up, you know, going about and doing his own thing. I hate anyway. that so much. I like it. Hmm. I'm sorry. All the serious fans out there are like, no. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> I like it a lot. All right, so now we're going to throw it to you guys with our first question of the week for Deathly Hallows. And the question focuses on the Malfoy family, particularly Narcissa. So, even though Voldemort targets Lucius and Draco with his taunts, the most striking description is of Narcissa, even as she is described as the opposite of her sister Bellatrix, who longs to be near Voldemort. Is she, Narcissa, the only person in the room really starting to consider distinct distancing herself from Voldemort. Is this the start of her huge decision at the end of the book with Harry? What is going through Narcissa's head as Voldemort acts this way in her own home? So if you need to, take a look back at the chapter, read Narcissa's body language, because I think it's really descriptive and really telling, Mm -hmm. and let us know what you think. Absolutely. I think it's a pretty strong first question, especially because the Malfoys are a family that we'll be watching closely throughout the entire book. I mean, without Narcissa, um, you know, lying to Voldemort in the end, who knows mm. how that would have ended up. You just never know. Maybe that'll be the question of the week in chapter, the later chapter. Maybe it will be. <laughs> maybe, maybe. 
Uh, well, we do want to thank our guest, Margie. Thank you, Margie, for joining us. So thrilled to have been a part of the show. Uh, yes, it was great having you. You definitely brought up some really cool points. Yeah, we hope you had fun. I, oh, I did. I did. You made my uh, summer. Oh, wow. Oh. You made her summer. Great oh, way to, Thank that you. was a great way for us to start the, the book. So thanks for joining us. And if you would also like to be on the show as a guest host, head over to our main page, alohamara.mugglenet.com. All you need is a simple set of headphones like Apple headphones and you'll be, you'll be all set. No fancy equipment is needed. And while you're there on the main site, you can also download one of our ringtones for free. And in the meantime, if you just want to keep in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at alohamaramn. Facebook.com slash Open the Dumbledore on Tumblr at MN Alohomar Podcast. Our phone number is 206 Go Albus. That's 206 462 5287. And you can always send us an audio boom. It's free. All you need is an internet connection and a microphone. Head over to alohomora.mugglenet.com. Leave us a message that's under 60 seconds and you just might hear it on the show. Also, make sure to check out our store that has a lot of great products like house shirts. Desk pig shirts, Mandrake Liberation shirts, and a lot of other products. I don't know why I'm saying shirts so many times. Minerva is my homegirl, and so much more. And there is, of course, the smartphone app. It is available around... <laughs> this is new, uh, isn't it? Available it is. around the world. Around the world. <laughs> it's a Daft Punk song. Oh, yeah. Then I should do it around the world, around the world, around the world. uh, uh, That's what they sound like, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Prices vary. You can find on this app transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings, host vlogs, and more. Uh, I can tell everybody listening that this week's uh, bonus content, when this episode airs, uh, which I am in charge of, will be awesome. Um so definitely go and check that out on our Alohomora app. You can find it uh, details on the website. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Alohomora. I'm Caleb Griggs. I'm Eric Skull. And I'm Kat Miller. Thank you for listening to episode 151 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore. Mew what is was the that? One, Mew is the 151st Pokemon. Oh. So you open the Dumbledore and you get Mew. I'm Mew. Hoo-hoo. Mew. So, I'm out of ideas. Audio test. Socks and slugs. To sit in solemn silence on a dull, dark dock in a pestilential prison with a lifelong lock, awaiting the sensation of a short, sharp shock from a cheap and chippy chopper on a big black block.